This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. This week, Media Business Matters has taken a field trip to the Michigan Theater, where we're speaking to Russ Collins, the CEO and Executive Director of the Michigan Theater, as well as the Artistic Director of the Cinetopia Film Festival, which takes place each summer in Ann Arbor, Dearborn, and Detroit, Michigan. So, Russ Collins, welcome to Media Business Matters. Thank you. I think usually when the, the trends that are covered in Variety or the, the industry press are focused on the commercial side um, and the big theaters, are, are those trends sort of, is the experience similar throughout the film industry or do you, is there a different experience in the art house sector? Um, I, I don't have the kind of hard data that I want to give you. The hard data that's collected does tend to be the kind of gross movie sales regardless of the type of, of movie. Um, what I can tell you is that the Art House Convergence has been going on for 10 years. And when we did our first Art House Convergence, we were thrilled that 27 people from around the country came to the meeting that we had. This year, our 10th year, 619 people registered uh, to um, get together with other community-based, mission-driven art house exhibitors. And one of the things that I think is very curious about the movie industry um, is that people like yourselves and the industry itself think of it as a singularity. But we don't think of the music industry that way. So you don't put you don't mistake Lady Gaga and the Boston Symphony Orchestra as both being musical acts. We we're very deeply understanding of all the little pockets and niches that there are in the music industry. So um, if you're Lady Gaga and you're not making millions of dollars, you're probably not considered to be terrifically successful. But if you're a blues artist and you're making tens of thousands of dollars, you might be considered a huge success or a reasonable success. If you're one of the artists that plays the arc and you can do it full-time, kind of doesn't matter how much you make, but obviously you have to make enough to put gas in your car and pay your mortgage and do whatever else you need to do, but you'd be considered a success if you made a, made a living at it. I'm hopeful that someday we think of the movie industry like it really is, or the movie sector, or the media sector, as the complex kind of piece that it is. But it, it tends to get di- sliced and diced into, you know, there's, there's, there's the media, and then there's movies, and then there's online, and then there's cable, and then there's, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Where, uh, if you think about the movie market, it is as diverse and complicated as the music industry. So when John Sayles makes a movie, he's not expecting to make hundreds of millions of dollars. If he makes tens of millions of dollars, he's really happy. If he makes a million dollars, he may be happy. Um, and that doesn't even register on mm-hmm. on the on the scale of what industry reporting is or what industry reporting would be considered successful. Um, I, I think that you know one, the movie industry is much more the, people going to movies at movie theaters is much more stable than the popular culture reporting on it would lead people to believe. Um, and two, the people going to movies at movie theaters, um, is a complicated and diverse market um, that tends to get simple, simplified mm-hmm. to a singularity. So anyway, I hope that reporting, 
you know, moves in a particular way to uh, make that uh, complexity better understood. So can you say more about being community-based and mission-driven? Sure. Um, so community-based, mission-driven theatrical exhibition uh, is essentially like a lot of the other cultural products that we think of. Um, Ann Arbor, Michigan has a wonderful music presenter called the University Musical Society. Right. They don't do rock and roll acts, or maybe they do one occasionally, but basically they do kind of classical or jazz or other kind of specialty performances, theatrical shows, uh, uh, dance works, um, that uh, you don't think of when you think of arena rock and roll. Um, or if you even think of large-scale um, popular music concerts. Uh, so it's an it's, it's a organization that focuses on the cultural aspect of mm -hmm. the music industry. Uh, there's another organization in Ann Arbor called The Ark that's a folk music club, but they also do shows here at the Michigan Theater, Hill Auditorium, at the right. Royal Oak Music Theater, as well as their own 400-seat club. Um, and they focus on acoustic music, mostly folk, but a little bit of jazz and a little bit of comedy and a little bit of a lot of different things, but really focused on that ac acoustic music dynamic. And they do it for the virtue and the benefit of the art and the community. Um, and so... Do they want to make money selling tickets? Yes. Do they want to ask the community to support them beyond ticket sales? Yes, because they, they're doing something special and cultural. And that's what a, a community-based, mission-driven cinema is. They do the cinema um, that is important. It could be classic cinema. It could be documentary films. It could be uh, foreign language films that have a hard time establishing themselves in the market. It can be... Uh, independent American films. Um, it could be a film festival of a, a variety of different types of film festivals. And occasionally, it's even films that break through to a larger audience. So, for example, we just recently played La La Land and Manchester by the Sea, which actually played the multiplexes as well. But if you think about Manchester by the Sea and La La Land, Manchester by the Sea is a depressing family <laughs> drama set in Boston. Yeah. We do depressing family dramas at art houses all the time. <laughs> this one just happened to catch a little bit more of an audience. And what typically. do you think was it about that film that led it to catch more of that audience? Uh, you know, people... There's uh, over 900 films that are typically released into the market in the United States annually. And some of them catch on, and some of them don't, and some of them are gigantic blockbusters, and some of them are kind of modestly successful. Manchester by the Sea was, based on a blockbuster dynamic, very modestly successful. Right. But um, it was successful enough that it played in enough multiplexes that it got a pretty broad exposure. La La Land is even a bigger surprise because if you think about musicals, it's not something that is considered part of the blockbuster dynamic. I doubt that La La Land sells $100 million worth of tickets. It's going to sell tens of millions of dollars worth of tickets um, uh, in, in the United States. It did really well for, based on its expectation. Um, but it's the kind of thing that an art house would do. It would you know, take this, this classical movie art form uh, in a contemporary guise and, and let it play out. Um, 
uh, it just happened to catch a lot of awards buzz and, right. and catch a lot of uh, interest that's kind of beyond the, the natural dynamic of it. And so, again, it played the, the multiplex uh, theaters. Uh, we're cur- currently playing um, a film by um, Jim Jarmusch and uh, um, uh, Pedro Almodovar, so a foreign language film and an independent American mm-hmm. film. And, you know, they're not playing the multiplexes. Uh, both of them have had movies that have played the multiplexes. But anyway, so sometimes it's hard to specific to categorize each individual film based on how it performs in the market. And there, you know, if if there was a clear answer to why Manchester <laughs> by the Sea or why La La Land uh, was such a big hit, then there would be more Manchester's by the Sea and La La Lands and, right. and lots of other things. Uh, but one of the things to think about in terms of the the theatrical market and then the larger market is that the democratization of filmmaking means that there's much, much more product out there for the market to digest. So, for example, the Sundance Film Festival, which is one of the preeminent world film festivals, they're good friend of, of ours. We work with them uh, with this Art House Convergence and, and on some other projects as well. Over the years, they, they, their festival plays about 120 feature-length films at each of the festivals. Mm-hmm. Um, a few years ago, they used to get 3,000 feature-length films submitted, and then they started getting 4,000 and 5,000, and now I believe they get over 7,000 feature-length films submitted to play at the Sundance Film Festival, and there's only 120 slots approximately for films to be played. So it means that if you're a filmmaker, your odds of getting into the Sundance Film Festival are less now than they were 10 years ago because there's more feature-length films that are available. If you think about the fact that in a whole year, 900 films get introduced into the market, and at one festival... 7,000 films were submitted that those filmmakers thought they should be able to play the Sundance Film Festival. You can imagine the tens of thousands of originally created movies that were probably made in North America and and tens of thousands of more that have been that are made around the world that try to find those 900 slots in the U.S. market. Now, the U.S. isn't the only market. I just use it as an example. To go back to Sundance, of those 120 films that get selected from the over 7,000 feature-length films that get submitted, maybe one or two or three of those films will break through to any kind of broader consciousness so that a year later people are talking about those movies. And maybe one or two or three dozen of those films get some kind of decent release deal with uh, Fox Searchlight or Paramount or Netflix or whomever, um, Amazon usually half of them don't get any kind of release deal at all. So the, you know, the, the 60 films that get release deals, one or two or three dozen get maybe the opportunity to make back their original investment. 
a couple will get big deals and they make back their original investment immediately. Of course, those <laughs> are the ones you read about. Right. But there's about half of them, about 60, that won't get any kind of release deal at all. And these are films that made it into Sundance. I mean, if you want to imagine that filmmaker that you get the call, your <laughs> film is in Sundance, your, you know, the alarms go off in your brain and, and the stars float in front of your eyes as you mm. think about how you know, this is going to make your future. And as a matter of fact, it usually doesn't. Even if you get a release deal, I mean, let, you know, let's think about, um, uh, you know, the unfortunate situation with the birth of a nation. You know, unfortunate on a, on every level of unfortunate, but that was the big deal film that came out of Sundance, and it did not find a market. Now, there's lot there's lots of reasons for that, um, but that was a, a guy that was passionate about the film that he made. Um, it was a distributor that thought there was a market for it. And things just went wrong in lots of ways. And in that case, it was very complicated, but frequently that <laughs> happens anyway. One mm -hmm. of the big buzzed films um, at Sundance was this year was called Mudbound. Um, and it was picked up by Netflix, which means it probably won't, for all intents and purposes, get a theatrical release. And frankly, it deserves a theatrical release. It's the kind of movie that should be seen on a big screen. But you know, it probably won't. Is that a tragedy? Nah. There's lots of films to play on the big screen. Um, and that's where most films establish their brand name and, and have subsequent viewership on pay-per-view or, or on your iPhone or wherever it is that, that you watch the, the movies. But um, it's a complicated market, but I, I don't know that it's really substantially different than it was... 30, 40 years ago when VHS tapes came out and, and that channel became available. So how do you select what plays here at the Michigan? Um, there's two basic components. We can curate programs. So currently we're doing a film of Japanese noir that's called Kuro, The Edge of Darkness. And so that's a very specialized dynamic, and we're doing it in association with the University of Michigan's uh, Japanese Studies program um, and the Screen Arts um, and Cultures program. We're doing a Korean series that's a similar kind of thing that we're doing with the Korean Studies program. Mostly the stuff that, that we play, so the, the Jim Jarmusch film that we're playing right now, the Pedro Almodovar film that we played, Jackie and Manchester by the Sea and, and La La Land. Uh, a lot of those things are in a pipeline that feed theaters, and the, the theater that, that our type of theater is a specialty exhibition theater. So some of our stuff plays at the multiplex. Clearly, La La Land and Manchester by the Sea did. Moonlight did. Moon, Moonlight. Well, but Moonlight, actually, we played it before it played at the, That's mul true. At, at the multiplex. And, and it's the kind of film that ended up. It, we, we played it, then it caught the awards buzz, right. and then it went into the multiplex. And that actually used to be a standard release pattern. It was called mm -hmm. a platform release, right. where they would release it into specialty films, hope that it caught enough buzz that it would, that it would play wider, a wider range of theaters. 
um, that's not so much a strategy, a release strategy anymore. It is sometimes, but uh, in, in Moonlight, it was kind of a de facto release strategy. Mm -hmm. They released it in, into the market that they knew would play it, which was the art house. Um, and then uh, because it caught some award buzz, then it went, went out. But it, it also is now online. Right. And so you can go to the multiplex, but you can also mm -hmm. watch it um, on, on your cable television. We curate a certain amount of programs in, and mm -hmm. then we um, uh, then we respond to this pipeline of, of films. Uh, and again, most of our stuff uh, comes out of the festival world uh, or from a foreign film uh, source. Uh, and most of our films are extremely well reviewed. They're like eighty; they have eighty or ninety percent positive response from critics. Um, and it's not because we're more clever at picking our movies than the multiplex. It's just that the multiplex is usually getting s stuff from commercial studios directly to commercial theaters that don't play the festival circuit. And, and many of the films that we play are curated through the festival dynamic um, or they're films that are very well reviewed in their country of origin. So if it's a French film or a German film or an Iranian film or a you know Italian film or whatever, uh, it will have been a, a very well reviewed film in Italy. And then some distributor goes, I think this would also play in the United States. So it not only has a, a, a theme that they think that uh, an American audience would respond to, um, but it's also very well reviewed in those countries, uh, and then and then it plays here. So I, I can say with a great deal of confidence, almost every movie that plays the Michigan Theater is excellent. You may not like it; it may not be your taste. I'm not saying that we have a movie that everybody's going to like all the time, um, but usually they're they're well reviewed and uh, well thought of films. Um, that uh, um, are, are not playing the multiplexes for the most part uh, because that's not the kind of films that they play. And that's where it goes to this diversity dynamic. You know, the, One of the things the commercial movie theaters do that I think is just stupid is they try to put independent movie theaters out of business. They have a, it's an old tactic. Um, if you think about the automobile industry, there's now you know, three American automobile uh, companies. Um, but back in the 20s, there were hundreds of automobile companies. And one of the things that happened in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s is the business got consolidated. And so we ended up with four companies, and now we have three companies, but now we also have a couple dozen foreign companies that, that are in the United States. Um, but consolidation in the 20th century was considered one of the cr critically important things that you needed to, to do to create efficiency. Um, and the same thing happened in, in the movie industry. You know, there, there are the big studios, but there used to be hundreds of studios, some of them in New York, some of them in Los Angeles, some of them in Chicago, some of them in, you know, all, all kinds of places. But they, but they got consolidated. And so this consolidation dynamic is, a, is an artifact of, um, uh, of, of a previous time when they were trying to drive inefficiencies out of, of the system. Well, now all of those 
inefficiencies for all intents and purposes have been driven out. But this notion of driving out the independent or the community-based mission-driven cinema um, is lingers in the minds of the commercial film industry so that the National Association of Theater Owners, which is the, the group uh, that commercial theaters, they will not let the Michigan Theater join that group because we're a nonprofit organization. And they have a, a bylaw against allowing any nonprofit theater join the National Association of Theater Owners. Now, we're actually friends with those folks. We talk to them, but their bylaws prevent us from being, <laughs> um, uh, you know, a member of their organization, which is another reason we started the Art House Convergence, because it's mm -hmm. a, a trade organization, in a sense, for those theaters that are left out. But if you're a for-profit theater, you can still be a member of the Art House of Divergence. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but uh, what the community-based mission-driven cinema does, this local uh, cinema, is they're all about the art of cinema and their community. So their goal is to teach people, to encourage people to love and become passionate about cinema. And if, if someone becomes passionate about cinema... They're not going to go just to the art house. They're going to go to any movie that they want to see. And there's a lot of great movies that play at the multiplex. I go to the multiplex all the time because we can't play all the great movies that are out there. I believe, and I wish we could get it across to the commercial movie industry, that the best thing that a, that a, that a community can have is robust commercial theaters and a robust Nonprofit, community-based, mission-driven cinema that's out there building film lovers. That's that's uh, understanding the market and teaching about this this wonderful art form that is pervasive, but not essentially taught in school until you get to the university, and build these passionate uh, cinema lovers. Has anyone ever tried to push the mission? Have you ever gotten a push from some of these theater owners? Is that something that's happened to you guys at the Michigan? Well, in you, terms of what way? In terms of somebody trying to push like the independent out of business. Um, it sure, uh, but it was many years ago. Okay, um, we um, there used to be a lot of movie theaters downtown, and uh, they were run by commercial entities. And the last one was the Ann Arbor Theater, which was on Fifth Avenue, and they closed and then opened the Quality 16 mm -hmm. out on, on Jackson Avenue. We're in a very fortunate situation. Uh, many years ago, the um, Redstone National Amusement opened the Showcase Cinema out on the southeast side of town. Mm -hmm. And uh, their corporate philosophy, for the most part, was we're not going to go after clearances. We're just the best theater in town. And uh, if your commercial theater can't keep up with us, oh, well, too bad, but we're not going to prevent product from playing in your theater. So that set the tone, uh, which was different than when United Artist was the, was the big player or when Butterfield was the big player before that, because they de definitely had a monopolistic view of how they wanted uh, the movies to, to play. <laughs> so anyway, and my career grew at a time when, when the, those other commercial forces were diminishing and, right. and showcase the Redstone National Amusement Theater um, was becoming the pre predominant theater, which was in the 80s and 90s. Is that what the rate is now? Correct. Okay.
And uh, to backtrack a little bit back to talking about how you pick your movies, how do you balance choosing maybe more, I I guess we're kind of getting into more mainstream art house titles versus, you know, other kind of foreign films, documentaries, things that you want the public to see. Is there a point where you will need to balance, you know, moneymakers versus just something you're passionate about that you want the public of Ann Arbor to see? Yeah, I, I wish I could tell you that it was such a brilliantly conscious uh, kind of <laughs> dynamic that, uh, you know, I, I can communicate the exact formula to you. Mm-hmm. Um, sh- show business, and I, I think this is true for anything that that sells tickets or sells records or whatever. Uh, show business requires hits, but generally show business is an economy of failure. Almost mm-hmm. everything fails. So most TV shows fail. Most bands fail, most records fail, most Broadway shows fail, most movies fail. And what I mean by fail is that there's an investment made by some bodies, and then that investment is to be repaid. And then more frequently than not, the investment is not repaid. Um, But every so often, something pays multiple times over what the investment is. So, you know, there's a blockbuster movie La La Land, for example, is going to pay back many times what the original, I think it was a $30 million budget. Um, And it's already made, what, 140 at least worldwide? Probably, probably. Um, And, uh, um, you know, only half of that actually goes to the the distribution company, approximately. But if you think about records, I mean, the, the, the most visceral example, usually, is, um, how many people knew a really, really good band when they were in high school? You know, it was either a band that uh, made up of their friends or people that they knew in high school, or it was a band that was just playing the town. And they were good. They were gen- they were genuinely good. Not good because they were your friends, but they were good. Um, and how many of those bands made it out of the garage or made it out of that local circuit? Almost none of them. And it doesn't mean that they were terrible. Maybe they were. A lot of them were. Most of them were. But a a lot of them are really wonderful. And in a town like Ann Arbor, you have a lot of really talented people come through. Especially with the university and all the students that come through. With the university and the youth market that's here and the notion that, you know, you can put a band together and and there's going to be a bar or there's going to be a fraternity sorority or a dormitory or whatever that's going to hire you to, to play. And, uh, and a lot of those folks go to New York, go to Los Angeles to, to try to cut a record deal, or they get a record deal, and then it just doesn't work out. So the odds are very set against you intrinsically. But every so often, something breaks through. Uh, mm-hmm. Hamilton is a good example. Like this Broadway musical by a guy who did an okay, successful musical. In the Heights made its money back. In the Heights was was okay. Alex is a very big Hamilton fan. I am a very big Hamilton well, fan. And, and there's a University of Michigan connection to this. Jeffrey Sellers, yep. the, the producer, who our college careers just barely overlapped, mm-hmm. he did Rent, which was also an unlikely kind of hit mm-hmm. Broadway musical. But if someone tries to explain why Hamilton is kind of an unprecedented hit, you can't explain it, but it is. It's a huge hit. And is it because it's better than every musical that's ever been written? Not really. Is it because it resonated the times better than anything has ever resonated the times? Not really. I mean, 
it works. And that's the thing is it works and it works amazingly. And God bless everyone involved in that, in that musical for, <laughs> for something that really is great, really is unique and really is amazing on every level as a piece of commercial work, as a piece of artistry and a, as a piece of storytelling. It just mm-hmm. is amazing. Have you seen it yet? I haven't. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I bought the album for all my kids and I've mm-hmm. listened to it many times myself and I can't wait to go. So I'm looking forward to it. But, um, you know, that that's one of those things that, you know, you look at it and go, well, you know, why can't we do a Thomas Jefferson musical or why can't we do a musical about the internment, the tragic internment of Japanese during World War there II. Was, I know, there, there was. was. <laughs> there was a musical. It wasn't a success. George Decay. But, uh, George Decay, yep. <laughs> um, so, uh, but why wasn't that a bit? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. the, so so there's, there's, there's thousands and tens of thousands of attempts and very few breakthrough. So that's a very long way to say, yeah, I like it when there's a La La Land and when there's a Manchester by the sea. Right. Because we need three or four or five art house hits every year. Mm-hmm. And if we can get three or four or five, depending on how big a hit they are, then we can make our budget uh, and do all of the other literally hundreds of films that we do that aren't a hit. Um, and it also engages audiences in ways. So you get people who, who we have our core audience that comes to a lot of stuff that we do and we're their cultural source. We're their living room where they go and hang out. We're the place that they, that they like to come and they feel comfortable. And then there's other people. Uh, I remember a few years ago, the Baz Luhrmann, um, great Gadsby. Mm-hmm. It brought in a ton of students, um, that, typically don't come to the Michigan theater or the state <laughs> theater. Um, and it was great. Uh, and so it's great to do those kind of things. Years before that, we did um, Up, the Pixar film. Oh, you guys up. showed up. That's cool. And, uh, uh, and the same thing happened, and it brought a lot of Pixar nuts that don't particularly come to the Michigan theater. But it also was the kind of film that our audience liked as well. Great Gatsby was good because it's a 1920s novel, and we were in 1920s theater, and so there was this really nice aesthetic. Fit I, I can imagine, the or for the listeners who don't know the Michigan theater, their main screening room is a 17 on 1800 1700 seat movie, movie, yeah, with a mez- with a balcony and 1920s and an organ that plays before the show. So when he, so when Russ talks about. Uh, it literally being like going back to the 20s, it kind of is. And actually, one of my favorite things to do is go to the first row of the balcony and see a movie from up there. Oh, yeah, it's great. It, it's something that I don't get to do in many it's places. great to see a performing arts event from that first yeah. row of the balcony, too. I think they're the best. And in the case of Up and um, The Great Gatsby, both of those films also opened a Cannes Film Festival, so it yeah. gave kind of a, an aesthetic endorsement there as well and and so it didn't turn off our 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 core audience that likes you know films Mm -hmm. that are that are more acclaimed so anyway it's good to have it's good to have hits and they come in all kinds of different forms sometimes they're a surprise like La La Land and Manchester by the Sea Um, sometimes they come uh, because you think that they'll probably work like The Great Gatsby which Mm -hmm. you had a a very broad release Um, but it still kind of fit into what we were about, and you guys also showed uh, Interstellar as well. I remember you. Guys we showed. did, and that was that. That was not a huge thing. We started at the State Theater, yeah, 
Um, and the reason that we showed that was because it was available in celluloid, and it was before we had two digital projectors <laughs> at the State Theater, so it was a it was a contemporary film that we could show and still show it on celluloid. Right. And we used that as a filler until we bought and installed the digital projector. <laughs> so anyway, every every exhibition has its story. I right. guess. Mm -hmm. um, multiplexes need Star Wars and and uh, and blockbuster films like that to 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 pay their bills. Um, art houses need. Woody Allen film or uh, or a or a La La Land to uh, to help them pay their bills. So everybody needs uh, everybody needs a hit. Mm -hmm. But it's amazing how kind of few of those that you need, uh, and then you need everything else to perform decently. And there's constant shifts about what people are interested. People are more interested in classic films today than they were five years ago, and they were really interested in classic films. 40 years ago mm -hmm. <laughs> but um that was before you could get anything online or even right. get a, a right. anything at the libraries before vcrs became was that back when like theatrical re-releases were prominent um well yeah studios and non-theatrical sources uh, had 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter prints that they warehoused that played the repertory market which was one of the phases of art house exhibition in the 60s and 70s. So other than the difference in the types of films you show, are there big differences in the, the basic business of exhibiting art house films versus what the commercial multiplexes are doing? In terms of the contract that we write with the, the copyright holders, there isn't very much different. Uh, in terms of the relative cost of running what we do, there's a big difference. Uh, commercial theaters are much more efficient. We actually have a marketing department. None of the individual commercial theaters around have a marketing department. Now, the chain has a marketing department. You know, we try to figure out who our audience is, and we, I think we spend a lot more money trying to get to that audience and motivate them. Mm -hmm. but, but that's part of our job. Our job is to stimulate the market uh, and and in a, in an education kind of way, and engage people with the virtues of of going to movies at a movie theater. The rough balance between things like your uh, ticket revenue, concessions, are there? Con concession sales at art houses are much less. It's about half. Well, you also charge less than multiplexes for no. Your oh no, for the most part, we charge the same. Okay. Were you meaning the tickets? No, for the no. Um, concessions. Oh, yeah. We, yeah. we do charge a little bit less. Yeah. Um, but it's not a huge difference, but yeah. it, my wallet definitely notices when I go to a few movies at your theater versus the Right. But the, the children buy a lot of concessions. And so oh, okay. um, if you have, you know, if, if a lot of children go to your movies, then you can sell 6 or $7 a head which averages out to four or five dollars a head, mm -hmm. but and uh, and you know if, if you show a French movie, this is a little bit of a stereotype. Nobody buys concessions, <laughs> and so we we tend to do art houses tend to do, you know, two to four dollars a head, and mm -hmm. commercial theaters tend to do you know four to eight dollars a head, okay, depending on the place and what they serve and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. How do live events fit into the overall programming? Well, in, in our particular case, our mission was to preserve the historic theater. 
Um, so from a strictly theatrical movie exhibition standpoint, probably the best thing we could have done was been to subdivide the Michigan Theater into five screens, two in the balcony, two underneath the balcony, and then the front of the balcony. But that wasn't the mission of the organization. The original mission was to save the historic theater as a complete unit. And then, and then make the theater available for community use. Right. So, um, you know, we do uh, rock and roll concerts and jazz concerts and symphony concerts and, and student events and community events and lectures and all kinds of other things uh, that allow the 1,700-seat theater to fill all those 1,700 seats or at least fill a majority of those 1,700 seats. So it's, it's really a mission dynamic of ours. The original mission was to preserve the theater and make it available for community use. A discovered mission based on what the community, how the community responded to us, was to show movies. Mm-hmm. And the reason that that came, I believe, was because the Michigan Theater came on uh, in the 1980s as a, as a community organization. And the, and the 1980s was when the campus film societies were failing. Mm-hmm. So starting in the 1950s, there was a really enthusiastic system of campus film groups. And it peaked in the 60s and 70s. And literally in Ann Arbor and in every campus around the country, but in Ann Arbor, the Modern Language Building would have uh, two or three or four films shown sometimes seven nights a week. Uh, Angel Hall would have two uh, auditoriums that would be showing movies. Uh, The old art and architecture auditorium, which is now called Lorch Hall, um, was the home of the Cinema Guild, and they always were showing movies. Um, And and then there were... uh, Natsai Auditorium always had a movie in it. So Mm -hmm. on campus, seven days a week... Um, not including the commercial movie theaters, you could go to two or three or four or five or six different films um, that a campus film group, a student-run film group, would, would be showing. Well, in the 80s, as the Internet started to come on, and the campus film societies were essentially an alternative media source. Um, they weren't... Uh, I mean, they showed second run and classic films on a regular basis, but really it was an alternative media. Uh, before you could watch anything you wanted um, online or, or um, by going to the library and checking out a DVD, uh, the only place you could see a movie was either on late night television <laughs> or at a place that showed movies. And so students seeing classic Hollywood films, this was a revelation to them. Um, students seeing uh, documentary films about subject matter that was important to students, the war in Vietnam, the, the uh, environmental uh, women's issues, all kinds of things. Uh, w- w- it was an alternative media source. Um, uh, and um, nudity. <laughs> students like to go to films with nudity in them. And, uh, and that became an alternative media dynamic. So the political, the cultural, the social, uh, and, and the titillating were all parts of this uh, alternative media dynamic that was part of the, the Campus Film Society. Well, mm-hmm. as the internet came on, 
all of those things flowed to the internet. And as, as film was a, a cutting edge technology that back in the teens and 20s, students flocked to just like they flocked to the internet in the 80s, 90s, and, and up to today, it, it drew that alternative media. And then there was, it was easier to distribute, even, even a greater diversity of alternative media was available in different kinds of ways. So that alternative media dynamic that the Campus Film Society had diminished. But what was left was the cultural cinema dynamic. And that was something that the community wanted. Students wanted it, faculty wanted it, the community wanted it, and the market wanted it because that not all movies in a sophisticated town like a college town uh, is, are going to show at the multiplex. So anyway, that became a discovered uh, mission part for us. So preserve the historic theater, make it available for community use, and then uh, become Ann Arbor Center for uh, Cinema Exhibition that's outside of the, of the strictly commercial dynamic. And so those are our three prongs of mission for what mm -hmm. we do. Um, a lot of art houses don't have the historic preservation or the community use dynamic, although almost all of them have a community interface dynamic. So it's about the arts, it's about the cinema, and it's about the community. So that part of the community part of it is just that overlap piece that ties, ties it all together from the historic building part to the cinema part, community, uh, and, and responding to the community and looking for the community to support is what makes these things work. Uh, and this is a community that's very passionate about quality of life, not surprising for a university town. So it likes excellent schools, it, it appreciates ed education, it appreciates excellent health care, it appreciates uh, cultural um, aspects of, of the community and is willing to support them. We've taken up a lot of time and seeing our, our counter go, but I wouldn't want to leave without talking about Cinetopia and yeah. where the film festival fits in your in the, or mission of the theater and your general duties. Sure. Well, um, the Cinetopia is is another key uh, outreach point, um, both in terms of uh, community dynamics. It's a regional festival. And also in terms of filmmakers, filmmaking and uh, exposing filmmakers' work, going to Sundance and other film festivals for many years, you realize that those 120 films that you see, of which only half of them get distribution and only a handful of them get any kind of attention, the rest of those movies don't suck. <laughs> They're actually wonderful movies. They may not be to everybody's taste, or distributors may not feel that there's a market for them, but there's a lot of really great films. So you saw all of these films sitting on the table, and you wanted the filmmakers to have some kind of an outlet. And so we focus Cinetopia on, on bringing films from other film festivals, and also encouraging local filmmakers to uh, have their films be part of Cinetopia. So we have the Detroit Voices, which is a sh essentially a short film, a curated short film program of area filmmakers uh, that, that's really organized towards telling Detroit's story. Uh, but we also, if we become aware of a local filmmaker uh, that, that's made a film, we invite them to submit their films so that we look at it. And we, we really want to exist 
exhibit uh, any kind of local film that has reasonable quality to it. But the majority of the festival is taking the films that play other film festivals. Um, uh, some of them actually have distribution deals, but it's before they are in distribution. Mm -hmm. Other films are just films that may or may not ever get distribution. They may, they may get online distribution. They may not get online distribution. They may get theatrical distribution. They may not. But we think that they, they deserve to be seen. Uh, and so we're able to show uh, 50 or 60 of these films uh, in Detroit and Ann Arbor. Uh, and we hope that this is a benefit to the filmmakers. We hope it's a benefit to the community because of the, the range of films that are out there. And putting them in a festival format encourages people to discover. One of the bad things, in a sense, about the way that people go to movies these days is they usually go to a movie that they think they're going to like before they go to the movie. So they read the reviewer that has a star, it has a director, it has some kind of story element that they think they're going to like before they go, and then they go and they it either meets their expectations or misses their expectations, and that determines whether they like it or not. And at a festival, and whether it's a music festival or a dance festival or or a technology festival uh, or a film festival, uh, they're all about discovery. And so what we would like people to do is buy a pass and then just dedicate a day or two or three or if you got the time, 11 days to discovering, to just going from one film to the next. Because I know from going to film festivals, some of the best films that, I've see, that I see are films that I would never have expected or have chosen to see. Uh, but you stumble into it because the film that you were just at got over and you, you're right there. And so you just go into the theater and then you see this you know, film that... Uh, opened your eyes and you would have never, as you looked at the catalog, thought, well, that's the film I'm going to go to. So that sense of discovery, that exposure for filmmakers that hopes are will help them establish their career. Uh, and then um, the Detroit metropolitan area needs a major film festival, and it just hasn't had one. The Ann Arbor Film Festival is great, but it's a very specific genre festival for experimental films. And our festival is, is in the international film festival format, like the Toronto Film Festival, right. like the Sundance Film Festival, like the Cleveland Film Festival, which is actually, or the Chicago Film Festival. The Cleveland Film Festival, which is in late March or early April, is really good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it's just that when you say Cleveland, people go, oh, well, <laughs> Cleveland, I mean, we are Michi Michigan people. Uh, looking at Ohio here. So. If you think about the Cleveland Symphony, it's been one of the better symphonies yeah. for many, many, many years. And the Cleveland Film Festivals, it's not an industry festival like Sundance in Toronto, <laughs> but it's a really great festival that does a very good job of bringing films to Cleveland, of getting Cleveland excited about the films that they bring. And, uh, you know, we, we look to be as successful um, as some of these larger film festivals. And fortunately, it's grown every year rather substantially. Mm -hmm. uh, it still has a lot farther to go in terms of that growth. Um, but uh, Detroit also has a very interesting um, film history in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Up until the 1960s, Detroit was second only to Los Angeles in the amount of film that was shot and edited. Um, wow. And it was primarily educational films, documentary films, and industrial films. There, was, there were several companies. The most notable one was the Jam Handy organization. And uh, it made a lot of films for General Motors. 
Um, it made a lot of films for major corporations all over the world. Um, but it also made some really interesting um, films. It, it made um, the first Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer animation, which isn't the stop-action one that mm-hmm. everyone's familiar with, but it's, a, it's that same story told in a you know, hand-drawn animation format. They did um, promotional pieces for the New York World's Fair in 1939. Uh, they did a, a really interesting promotional film uh, in 1964 or 5 uh, that promoted Detroit as the site for the 1968 uh, Olympics. And it, Detroit just barely missed over Mexico City. And if you think about what, how that might have changed Detroit, and, and it was really close. Uh, they also made a, a, in 1966, they made a promotional piece for WJR, which was a big radio station back at the time. And it talked about how Detroit, in 1966, this was the year before the revolt in Detroit in 1967, uh, but how Detroit was this uh, the city that had a higher than the national average av- income uh, across the metropolitan area, the you know the seven county metropolitan area, and what a prosperous, um, forward-looking market that it, it was, and it it, it truly was. Uh, and then things changed quite a bit. Um, they were already changing starting in the late fifties, but uh, they really it, it really changed. But this. Detroit's history as a filmmaking place, because the the directors, uh, the editors, the the film labs, and everything was here in the same kind of scale that they were in Los Angeles uh, for for the commercial narrative movie business. And do you have anything else, anything special planned for the 2017 iteration of Cinetopia so far? The the 2017. Uh, Cinetopia will be um, curated out of, again, Sundance and South by Southwest, uh, the Cannes Film Festival, Toronto Film Festival. We've had people go. There's an African Diaspora Film Festival in Los Angeles right now that we have Mm -hmm. one of our folks at, the Berlin Film Festival, which is going on. Uh, We have... uh, uh, our spies out there. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, and uh, we're going to do um, a symposium. The University of Michigan is doing a symposium as part of their Makers of Maverick archive. Uh, and one of the gentlemen that donated his archive, uh, Ira Deutschman, who was a film producer, uh, a film uh, distributor, and a film marketer, a really fascinating guy, is going to be here. Um, we're going to uh, do a uh, pre-release premiere of Ken Burns' documentary, Vietnam. Uh, we're going to premiere um, a film made in uh, Detroit based on a, a symphonic piece that was created called uh, Symphony in D, uh, which D meaning Detroit. Um, it's going to be very cool. And then literally the, the best films from Sundance, the best films from Berlin, the best mm-hmm. films from uh, the Toronto Film Festival that we're actually putting together right now, South by Southwest. And and uh, and so the program is putting, being put together. The, the, the first part of the festival is going to be in Ann Arbor, and then the symposium takes place, and then uh, the, we'll wrap up in Detroit with some really cool stuff. So. Sounds great. Yeah. The sixth annual Cinetopia Festival. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, all of this. Yeah, this is history. This has been a great conversation. <laughs> we, we'd well, love. thanks for your interest. 
Yeah, we'd like to thank you, Russ Collins. Thank you very much for joining us on Media Business Matters. Absolutely. Happy to do it, and thanks for uh, thanks for doing it, and uh, we'll look forward to listening to more of uh, the business of media from your <laughs> podcast. So thank you. And now we're back in North Quad Studios to end our show with our favorite segment of each and every week. Sorry, Pop Culture Happy Hour. What we're watching this week. Amanda, what are you watching this week? Well, I have been busy as a pre-screening judge for the Peabody Awards watching uh, my segment of submissions. So I've seen a lot of things, but not a lot of them. And so now I have a whole bunch of new series that I'm curious to to watch the rest of and add to my list. But I have also started at last Westworld, and that's what I've been working through most uh, diligently in the last week or so. And uh, I'm, I am intrigued. So. It is, Westworld is quite something as a show. I binged most of it when I was home for the holidays, and it is, I don't quite know where it's going, but I kind of like the kind of, I'm not sure. I'm still, like, cautiously, like, intrigued and pessimistic at the same time, inherently. Yeah. I'm about midway through the season, and I think I'm, more than anything, it, I'm curious about its source text, and wondering how how different or similar the the two are and uh so i might check that out if i once i get through the first season and i i, I won't reveal any spoilers right now well thank you alex what are you watching so i've got a few things on my list this week as as i tend to do the first is netflix's one day at a time which uh, is created by norman lear and mike royce it's got rita moreno justina machado it's about a cuban family and it is hilariously funny and smart. It deals with topics that I really like. That it, it, I really like the kind of topics it's delving into. It's heading into deeper themes, including Justina Machado's daughter's sexuality. Uh, Justina Machado, her character is a veteran, so it deals with veterans' issues. I mean, it's a Norman Lear sitcom in exactly the way you would hope a Norman Lear sitcom would be. I also want to mention uh, Netflix is a series of unfortunate events, which is... it's. Wes Anderson, but for kids, kind of. It, it, it's a really fun sort of adaptation of these books. I grew up reading them. They are very dark, but very, like, the show is sometimes hysterically funny. Neil Patrick Harris as Count Olaf is brilliant casting. So remind me, uh, these came up a few times while I was off on my walkabout and giving talks. What is the format for these? There's, it's a number of, would you call them films? So every two episodes is the ad is an adaptation of one book. So they split each book into two, essentially two hours of TV. Mm -hmm. So kind of in a way they are mini films, and they're I believe going to do all twenty six episodes for all thirteen books. Um, although I don't know if a season two has officially been greenlit yet, but they did the first four books in the uh, first season. Uh, so the conversation I've been having was sort of. Those set of stories, in conjunction with the, the Gilmore Girls, revisited. Yeah. Now, are these films, are they television, how do we decide? So I don't have an answer for that, but yeah, uh, these I, sound interesting to take a look I at. I guess to me it's an Emmy-eligible question mark, ah. um, which the, these all would be. So just, although that creates an interesting thing with O.J. Made in America, which was Emmy and Oscar-eligible. Ah. Both, but. Is, is that a TV show? Is that a movie? Uh, I don't know. Strange conversations we can have these days. 
That's it for this edition of Media Business Matters. If you want more Media Business Matters, you can go to amandalots.com, click on the podcast link at the top of the page, or search for us in iTunes, and we're now on the Google Play Store. So go to play.google.com slash music and search Media Business Matters. Amanda, where can we find you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots, D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find me at Alex Zintner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. And you can find more about the Michigan Theater by going to mishtheater.org, M-I-C-H, theater.org. Or you can go follow them at Michigan Theater on Twitter. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back soon.